If you would open your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father in heaven again, as always, we are grateful that we have this time to open your word and to focus on those things that you have preserved for us, to focus on those things that you have reserved uh, and revealed to us, that, Father, we may have a, an understanding, again, an understanding of life, an understanding, Lord, of what is, and an understanding of, of why things are the way they are. Father, we ask as we continue our study in the book of Ecclesiastes that, Lord, that you would open our hearts and minds and that you will enable us to understand. That, Father, you would enable us to grasp the answers to the questions that are raised. That, Father, our confidence in you would continue to grow. That, Father, we would continue to be encouraged by what your word reveals to us. That, Father, we will find the answers to the questions that are raised satisfying and that Lord that we'll have a sense of peace as a result we know Lord that you are with us here now because you have told us Lord that you would be with us and that you would never forsake us and we ask that you bless our time in your word this morning and we do ask these things in Christ's name amen Ecclesiastes 3 beginning in verse 16 it reads this way Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. What happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. The section that we're going to begin to look at this morning, uh, we're about to cover... uh, Issues that deal with injustice in the world. We're going to be dealing with not knowing whether or when it will be punished as far as injustice. This passage here also revisits the problem of death. So let me phrase the question that Solomon is raising here in a different way. If God actively watches, regulates, and determines all the actions of men, Why does he allow so much wickedness to exist? Especially in places where judgment and justice should be exercised and dispensed. What we're dealing with here this morning, and primarily this is the only thing we'll deal with this morning, is what has often been called the problem of evil. It is the most serious problem in the world. It is also uh, one of the most serious objections to the existence of God. You will hear the problem of evil raised in one way or the other almost on a weekly basis. Anywhere on TV where there's an interview taking place, whether it's on the news or a talk show or what have you, and people begin to deal with 
issues around the world, issues in society. If perhaps somebody brings up religion or God, this issue is going to come up. It is thrown around as if it's a done deal. Because this question exists, the assumption is there is no answer, therefore God doesn't exist. And if he does exist, he's of no value. He's powerless, he's no good, it makes no sense to believe in him. It doesn't matter if you believe in him. In fact, because of this question of evil in the world, more people have abandoned their faith because of this problem than for any other reason. It is certainly the greatest test of faith, the greatest temptation to unbelief. And it's not just an intellectual objection. It is something that people feel. We feel it. We live it when it comes to evil in the world and the evil that takes place. Again, the problem that is, uh, to state the problem more simply, it is often given in this way. If God is so good, why is his world so bad? If an all-good, all-wise, all-loving, all-just, all-powerful God is running the show, then why does he seem to be doing such a miserable job of it? Why do bad things happen to good people? In fact, if your kids go to college, they're going to hear this raised, period. They take their introduction to philosophy and other classes that have nothing to do with these issues. You're going to hear this being raised. Individuals who are professors, individuals who are in positions of leadership authority, are again are going to raise this question. They're going to raise this question again as if the answer has already been given, and that answer is there is no answer that is adequate. Most of the time, the individual is not going to be given time to respond. And we do live in a culture that there is this idea, there's this belief, that if you cannot answer this question in 15 to 30 seconds, you don't have an answer. Now, that is absolutely untrue in every way. There are many things that cannot be explained at all in 15 to 30 seconds. But those who somehow will take this position, that if you can't give this answer immediately and within the allotted time, then that means there is no answer. And we're off the hook, or they're off the hook. We do need to realize that often, it's not always this way, but often the unbeliever who asks this question about God usually feels a lot of resentment towards God. There is a sense of rebellion against God, even though they may be claiming God doesn't exist. So it's not just that there's, that there's a lack of evidence for God. This person feels resentment. In fact, C.S. Lewis said that before he believed in God, he was also very angry with God for not existing. He was also angry with him for having created the world. So there's a little bit of confusion there. He's angry that God doesn't exist, but he's angry the world is made. When you talk to such an individual, sometimes, that's not always this way, but sometimes that individual is almost like talking to an individual who's been recently divorced. You're not talking to a person who's a skeptical science, but someone who's been betrayed. They, they feel that they have been betrayed by an unfaithful lover. So they're not dealing with some kind of just hypothesis. They feel this sense of resentment and cynicism. So the unbeliever's problem is not just a soft head. It's a hard heart. So we need to go through a few things to help us to be able to frame and understand the question better. To look at many of the assumptions that are made that are, I believe are wrong assumptions when it comes to this issue. 
As Christians, we do not have to be afraid of the problem of evil. In fact, the Bible is not afraid of it. Solomon raises the issue here in this passage, and we can face it head on. We actually have answers. There's nothing for us to be afraid of. Now, do remember that many individuals, if they're actually willing to listen to you and you begin to explain uh, the answers to the question, which usually begins with explaining the question because the individual doesn't really understand what they're asking. And when you begin to do so, there's no guarantee. In fact, more likely than not, they're not going to like your answer. That's true. They're not going to like what you have to say. But don't worry about that part. Just be faithful to what the Word of God says. Ask the Lord to bless uh, what you are saying. The goal is to try to help that individual actually, I believe, raise more questions. I want them to become much more dissatisfied with the question they're asking and realize that in one sense, if I have to answer the issue as to why there's so much evil, then so do they. And their answer is going to be extremely inadequate in every way. First of all, when it comes to evil, evil, I believe, is not a thing. It is not an entity. It's not a being. All beings are either the creator, which would be God, or they are creatures created by God. But everything God created, when you read the book of Genesis, is good. After every creative act, he said, it is good. We naturally tend to picture evil as being a thing, like that black cloud that follows you around, or a dangerous storm, or the grimacing face, or dirt. But all those pictures really are misleading. Because if God is the creator of all things, and evil is a thing, then God is the creator of evil. And he is to blame for, it, for its existence. So then, <coughs> excuse me. So then, if evil, or evil is not a thing, but it is definitely a wrong choice, I believe it is an absence of good, and we'll look at that a little more deeply in just a moment, but evil is not a thing, it's a wrong choice, or you could say it's the damage that is done by a wrong choice. Evil is no more a positive thing than blindness is. Blindness is the absence of sight. Evil is just as real as blindness, but again, it's not a thing, but it's also not an illusion. So we want to make sure we're clear on that. Evil is real. We would say that evil exists, just like blindness exists. But blindness, in a sense, is not a thing. It is the absence of the ability to see. The person may have eyes, but they can't see. There's a blindness that is there. People are blind physically and also intellectually or spiritually for a lot of different reasons. But the idea is that there's an absence of sight, or when it comes to things that are spiritual, an absence of understanding. But again, evil is still real. Evil really does take place. So we would also say at the same time, there really is such a thing as evil. You watch the news, you play aware, be aware of what's happening in the world. There is evil that is in the world. Secondly, the origin of evil is not God the Creator. But if you read the scripture, it is man freely choosing to sin and to act selfishly. Because in the beginning, man was created good. Man was perfect. He was given a command. Man then chose to sin in his freedom, in this, this, this uh, uh, being created perfectly, 
And part of being created as he was in the image of God, I also believe meant that he was given absolute freedom, which meant that since his freedom was absolute, he had the ability to choose against his nature. At that point in time, man had a good nature. He chose against his nature. We have that ability to a degree. Uh, we should be able to understand that, that human beings uh, have the ability to choose against their nature. Uh, for example, it may be in your nature, I'm using the term loosely, but it may be in your nature uh, that when you come across an individual who disagrees with you, for you to become angry, uh, or if somebody argues with you, it may be in your nature to hit them, uh, but you may choose to not hit them. You're, you're choosing against your nature. An animal, uh, even if an animal is not going according to its nature, if all of a sudden if a man keeps putting his head in the lion's mouth, uh, and it's a great trick, I don't want to learn it, but it's a great trick. Uh, but when that lion closes its mouth, when the trainer has his head in its mouth, we don't call the lion evil. What we say is a lion is acting according to its nature. That's what lions do. Uh, when you see individuals who are, um, I would call it, messing with crocodiles, it may be part of a show. I guarantee you some people are paying their money to see something else happen. But it is astonishing when you see whatever they're doing. But then when the crocodile bites them or attacks them, we don't say, oh, that's an evil crocodile. Eh, we just say, that trainer's a fool. He should know that that's going to happen one day. You don't do that uh, because that's what a crocodile is. So we are different than animals in that way. And so man freely chose to sin. Take away all sin and selfishness and you would have heaven on earth. Even if you have the remaining physical evils, uh, they wouldn't rankle or embitter us. So saints endure and embrace suffering and death. Not that we want it to happen, but we embrace it almost as lovers embrace heroic challenges. But we don't embrace sin because there's a difference between those two things. Furthermore, and this is very important for us to remember, the cause of physical evil is spiritual evil. The cause of physical evil is spiritual evil. Now, we don't have time to go into all the details of all of these things, but uh, remember our meta-narrative, the story, the big story that explains everything. We go back to the book of Genesis for that. And because of Adam and Eve and because of their choosing to sin, they brought upon themselves and upon the earth the curse of sin. As a result, death came not only to man, death came to all things. Their, their uh, decay came to all things. Uh, there are now thorns and thistles and pestilence. There's now going to be disruptions in nature. All of that has a, physical has a spiritual cause. It's because of Adam and Eve's rebellion against God. The cause of suffering is sin. We understand that. When an individual in our midst gets cancer and they're suffering... Uh, from that, we believe that that's because of sin. Now, there's two aspects of that. We, don't, we know that in some cases, maybe in many, that the reason they're suffering uh, from cancer or maybe part of the reason why they're suffering from cancer is because of their sin. We know that's a possibility. But just because someone's suffering from cancer doesn't mean that it's their sin. We live in a sinful world. We're under the curse of sin. As a result, we're going to get diseases things are going to happen so the sin is the cause of that as again it's the cause of the suffering again genesis tells us the story of a good god who created a good world uh, and of course 
it answers the obvious question, which is, where did evil come from? And that is the story in the fall of mankind. So how are, we, how are we to understand this? How can spiritual evil, sin, cause physical evil, suffering and death? Well, keep this in mind. God is the source of all life and joy. Okay? God is not just a being who's all-powerful and keeps things going. He is the source of all life. We have life as individuals because that is the will of God. Period. You and I were born because that was the will of God. Humankind exists because that is the will of God. He is the source of all life and all joy. Therefore, when the human soul rebels against God, it loses its life and joy. And we believe that when Adam and Eve sinned, that they died spiritually. They died immediately spiritually. Yes, they were going to die physically, but God showed mercy and allowed them to live uh, longer. A sacrifice was made. I believe the sacrifice was made by God when God covered Adam and Eve with uh, the bloody skins from two animals that were slaughtered by God. So they were covered by uh, the death of these animals. It was a, a temporary uh, setting aside of sin. And that, and that idea of sacrifice carries all the way through the Old Testament until the ultimate sacrifice came, which was Jesus Christ. So the human soul rebels against God. It loses its life and joy. And now a human body or a human being is a body as well as a soul. We are single creatures, not double. We've talked about that before. We spent some time talking about what happens to us when we die. And we, we went into some detail about that. So we're not really so much a body and a soul as we are really an embodied soul. There is this union that's, that's there. So the body must share in the soul's inevitable punishment because of this union of the body and the soul, because we are one entity. We're not, we don't view ourselves as two. We can talk about our soul and our body, but we still view ourselves. We are one thing. We are one person, and, and we are both of those things at the same time. So a punishment as natural and as unavoidable as broken bones from jumping off of a cliff or a sick stomach from eating rotten food, we suffer. We don't say, well, my body's suffering, but my soul is just fine. Uh, there's, there's anguish throughout the entire individual. So what of this consequence of sin was a physical change in the world, which is what I believe. You will find that Sometimes when you read some books, some individuals will say things that they believe that uh, in the Garden of Eden, that a rose bush still had thorns, but that either it wouldn't hurt and you really wouldn't prick your finger. I don't know how they go into all of that, but, but uh, I'm one of those that believes that, no, the thorns and thistles came later. Like the moment Adam and Eve sinned, boom, that's when they came. Uh, but however it is, it's how you, however an individual understands that, the bottom line is, is that that is the consequence of sin. So again, uh, no matter how you view that, the connection between spiritual evil and physical evil has to be as close as the connection between the two things they affect, which is the human soul and the human body. When we sometimes, let's say that uh, there's this, a sudden, what we would call a sudden tragic death. Usually a sudden tragic death is when a young person dies, whether that person's in their 20s, they're a teenager, they're a child, and that person dies. If, if that is your child, if that is your brother, uh, when we uh, uh, hurt as a result of that, there's anguish. 
that individual will suffer both physically and spiritually or emotionally. Again, the whole person is suffering. The individual doesn't say, well, my body's just fine, but I'm really suffering in my soul. Again, we don't make those uh, distinctions in that way. So then when Adam and Eve sinned, when man sinned spiritually, again, this embodied soul sinned and rebelled against God. So as a result then, because of the curse of sin, then the the body and the soul of man are both affected. You, You don't separate those two things out. The man died spiritually, the man also dies physically. And the Bible even says that there's a day coming when the body will be what? Will be redeemed. There's, there's a redemption uh, that is there. So you could say it this way, that the origin of evil is free will. Man wants to make a big deal about free will. It's not that good of a thing. Because that's where evil comes from. Some would say this, well, because the origin of evil is free will, then God is the origin of free will, so God is the origin of evil. Well, view it this way. God would be guilty of the origin of evil in the same way that parents are the origin of the misdeeds their children commit because they are the origin of their children. We don't believe that. In fact, what we would say, that if, uh, if a child is acting in an evil way, we may say uh, the parents are responsible because they allow their kid to do that. We may say the parents are responsible because they don't correct their child. But we don't say, well, that's so-and-so's child, that's their fault. Uh, we, don't, we don't think just because they came from those two individuals, it's their fault. We don't hold them responsible for that. Uh, we hold them responsible for choices and decisions and lack of decisions and choices, and we also hold that individual um, responsible for the things that they do, varying in degrees of responsibility based on their age. But in the end, we don't, we don't somehow think that if someone murders someone, well, it's clear that it's their parents' fault because they had that child. Nobody says it that way because we don't believe it. And so, applying the same reasoning to this issue of evil, God is not responsible for evil because he made man with the ability to make free choice. And because man chose to do evil, somehow God is responsible for that. God is not responsible for that. The all-powerful God gave us a share in his power to choose freely. Remember, we're made in the image of God. And I'm sure that you and I are happy that we are not just robots. God didn't make us to be robots. He gave us, again, this ability to make choices. I don't know about you, but I enjoy making choices. Uh, In fact, in America, we're known for making choices. We complain if we don't have enough choices. You know, if you go to a restaurant and you want dessert, and they have three choices, sometimes we get upset. That's all you have? We sometimes can take that for granted, uh, because in other countries, it's not like that at all, even though they may have freedoms. And uh, when, I remember Bosco when he was here. But Bosco, he says that we have so many choices to make, it made him tired. When we, we went out to eat one day, and he just wanted a, a hamburger. Well, how do you want it cooked? You want cheese? What kind of cheese? You want pickles? You want lettuce, onion, tomato? You want mustard, ketchup, mayonnaise? What kind of bread do you want? You want whole wheat? You want the pretzel bread? And I guess now you can get this in some places. You can get a donut, a glazed donut to serve as your bun. You probably should have that only once a year. But anyway, uh, the point is, is the choices never end. 
And then they say, what side would you like? He says, whatever comes with it. What's your choice? We'll choose from what? Well, the rest of what we were at, well, there's 14 items to choose from. from. And he was just like, it was crazy. And then she asked what he wanted to drink. He said, just water. We won't limit with that? (laughs) And it was just, you know, he looked at us and he's, how do you do this? Of course, we're used to that. And if, if you went to a restaurant and you just, because he says where he goes in, in uh, Uganda, you go to a restaurant, there may be like two things. And you just get what comes with it. That's it. We probably wouldn't tolerate that. Uh, but nonetheless. Uh, so again, in the end, we are very, very thrilled and happy that we are not robots. We have, we have this freedom that God gives us. Thirdly, when it comes to this, Although evil is a serious problem philosophically, it's a, it's a serious problem for thought uh, because it seems to disprove the existence of God. It doesn't, but it seems to do that. And many people think that it does. It is even more of a problem in life because if it's the real exclusion of God, which is in a, in a sense what evil is, it's the exclusion of God. So it's a problem philosophically because we're afraid it disproves the existence of God. But it's a real evil is a very real problem in life because it is uh, the exclusion of God. Even if you think the solution in thought is obscure or philosophically is obscure and uncertain, the solution in practice is as strong and as clear as the sun is on a bright day. Because the, uh, the solution is the sun. God's solution to the problem of evil is his son, Jesus Christ. So remember that if someone raises that issue about if God is good, then why is there so much evil? You can steer the conversation to what God has done about evil. You can can just briefly ask them, would you like us to be robots? Would you like God to have made us so that we had no choice? Because if you can't do evil, you can't do anything else either. You can only do what you're programmed to do. Most people on some level like to have the ability and want to retain the ability to make decisions on their own. But no one likes to, be, uh, to think that somehow we're forced to do certain things. And so the moment you dismiss that, or at least move on from that to a degree, you can say, well, a good God would offer a solution to the problem. And he has. And the solution is his son, Jesus Christ. Again, remember that when we talk about Jesus Christ coming to the world, which we talk a great deal about at Christmas, again, God was not just giving us a symbol of his love by giving us his son to be just a good example for us. He was coming to deal with the problem of evil. He came to be punished for all of the evil you and I would ever commit as believers. Remember that when we embrace the gospel, it's not just now that his evil people were now going to go to heaven. God transforms us. God begins to make us better people. He begins to make us good. We are not as good as we will be, but we are better than we were. And if you're not, we need to sit down and talk about your faith in Christ and what that means. Because we should be becoming better people. Uh, To use poor English, we should be more good. You should be more good or gooder today than you were a year ago. So God's solution, again, to the problem of evil is His Son, Jesus Christ. The Father's love, it was His love that sent His Son to die for us, to defeat the power of evil in human nature. 
That's the heart of the Christian story, and that is the heart of the Christmas story. That's why when you talk to individuals about the birth of Christ, even though it may be old news for us, it may be new news for many others, and you can ask them, do you know what it means when the scripture says that when he was laid in a manger, he was wrapped in swaddling clothes? If you have an NIV, it's wrong. He was not wrapped in a blanket. He was wrapped in swaddling clothes. That's strips of cloth. Remember that that's burial cloth. That's what that is. When they, when they would bury the dead, they would wrap them in strips of cloth. That's what he was wrapped in. Obviously, the symbolism should not be lost, that he came to die, and the very first clothes of our Savior was the clothes of a dead man. And you can use that as your launching point to talk about the reason why Jesus came. Because you'd be amazed. You may think, because we tend to think of everything in the world pretty much from our perspective. We think, well, of course, everyone knows why Jesus came. No, they don't. They have no clue. And even if they understand to some degree, at least intellectually, that Jesus did die a horrible death or that somehow he got a raw deal, they don't know why. They don't understand the significance. Remember that we don't worship a, a, just a deistic God. We don't worship an absentee landlord who ignores his slum. We worship, and I know this may sound shocking to some, but we worship a garbage man God who came right down into our worst garbage to clean it up. So you see, we don't have to get God off the hook for allowing evil. God is not off the hook. God is the hook. That's the point of the cross. The cross is God's part of the practical solution to evil. Our part, according to the same gospel, is to repent, to believe, to work with God in fighting evil by the power of God. The king has invaded, and we are finishing the mopping up operation, so to speak. Fourthly, we still have the philosophical problem of the problem of evil. It is not logically contradictory to say that an all-powerful, all-loving God tolerates so much evil when he could eradicate it. See, the assumption behind the question is, is that this is, it's contradictory for you to believe in a God who's all-powerful and all-good and there's evil. It's not a contradiction. Their belief is that, oh, if there was a good, all-powerful God, he would immediately clean it up. Well, what we can say is, number one, God is going to one day, he is going to clean it up. God is going to, in a sense, take out all the rubbish. I'm not going to be in that pile because I believe in Christ. You have to remind them that if God eradicates evil, that means he's eradicating evil people. That would be them. Unless they accept the gift that God has given them. Why do bad things happen to good people? Well, let me uh, again go into a couple of assumptions that are made with just that question. When the question is raised, why do bad things happen to good people? First assumption is this. And again, this is, we're not being argumentative. Because sometimes individuals think that, we're, that you may be trying to be argumentative. No, we're trying to understand the question. We want to make sure that it's framed correctly. And so we can ask this question to their question. You can follow the example of Jesus. Jesus often answered questions with questions. Sometimes people get frustrated with it, but if you want to help people think, because remember, we're not trying to sell them a used car. We want them to come to Christ with their eyes open. Okay, we're not trying to dupe anybody. We're not trying to avoid any difficulties. Uh, if it takes more than a day for them to come to Christ, then, then there's nothing wrong with that. We're not in a hurry. We can trust what the Word of God reveals. They can trust what God the Spirit is doing in them. So the first question is this. 
Who's to say we're good people? Of all people, Christians should understand that. Who is to say we're good people? We are, some are, relatively good. Okay, so a Christian can say there's no such thing as a good as a good person anywhere. That person doesn't exist. It's very difficult for an unbeliever to understand when you say that. It just sounds like you're being arrogant and judgmental. So it may be better to say that, well, there's no one who's just good. There are people who are relatively good, but there is no one who's absolutely good. And normally, almost always, the person you're talking to will immediately agree with that. Well, I mean, yeah, I'm not saying that we're absolutely good in every way. Oh, good. So then we're all evil. I mean, that's what we're getting at. So again, the question should not be why do bad things happen to good people, but why do good things happen to bad people? Why do good things happen to us? If the fairy godmother tells Cinderella that she can wear her magic gown until midnight, the question should not be why only till midnight? The question should be why does she get to wear it at all? The question is not why the glass of water is half empty, but why is it half full? You know, people do that survey, what kind of person are you? Do you believe the glass is half empty? Do you believe the glass is half full? Well, I'm convinced that all good Christians should believe the glass is half full. We can talk about that another day. All right, but remember that all goodness is a gift. The scriptures declare that every good gift comes from God. It's a, just a, it's a statement of this absolute fact that comes from God. So the best people are the ones who are the most reluctant They call themselves good. Sinners think they are saints, but the saints know they are sinners. And it was Jesus who said, no one is good but God alone. Secondly, second question, letter B, who is to say that all suffering is bad? Now, I told you, people may not like the answers to our questions or the questions that we're asking to their questions. But who's to say that all suffering is bad? Let's uh, think for a moment about two parents who raise two children, but they spare them from all suffering. What will you have? Probably spoiled brats and or tyrants. You will not have joyful saints. That's not going to be produced. There's a, a rabbi... If you ever read Rabbi Abraham Heschel, uh, his writings are pretty interesting. He's not a Christian, by the way. Uh, He didn't become a Christian, but he's got some really cool stuff to say. Uh, He believes in the Old Testament to a degree, but he said this, The man who has not suffered, what could he possibly know anyway? So if you ever seek advice from some, some individual, we don't go looking for the individual who's never suffered. In fact, what do we normally do? If you're suffering from cancer... If you want to talk to an individual about how to get through it, there may be a few people that you, that you have great respect for, but normally what we're leaning on are those who've what? Experienced the suffering of cancer. When it comes to dealing with the death of a loved one, if we want to take advice from a friend, we normally are going to choose the friend who has already been through the death of a loved one. It's those individuals who've suffered. Now, just because someone suffered doesn't mean they have wisdom, but that's another message altogether. But we do know that suffering can work for the greater good of wisdom. It is not true that all things are good, but it is true, according to the book of Romans, that all things work together for good to those who love God. Letter C, or thirdly, 
Who's to say we have to know all of God's reasons? We've mentioned this before in the past. Who ever promised us all the answers? Animals, as you know, can't understand much about us at all. Why should we be able to understand everything about God? In other words, compared to our understanding and God's understanding, it is like your dog and how much understanding he has compared to you. Now you may think, well, my dog has a whole lot more understanding than you think. Well, he might, but he still doesn't have as much understanding as we have. Because in the end, he's still a dog. No matter how smart you think he may or she may or may not be. When you read through the book of Job, the obvious point of the book, it is the world's greatest exploration of the problem of evil. And we just don't know what God's up to. Remember that with all of the questions that Job was asking, when God began to speak to him, I believe the number is 47, God begins with 47 questions. When the story is over, the answers to his question are not given to him. Job's questions are not answered. And we must understand that and remember that. It's a hard lesson to learn, that we are ignorant and that we are infants. There was a, there's a story about Socrates that he was declared by the Delphic Oracle to be the wisest man in the world. Socrates thought about that for a moment, and he interpreted that declaration to simply mean this, that Socrates alone knew that he did not have wisdom, and that was true wisdom for man. It's like we say it a different way. Well, you know, no one has all the answers. Someone says, I need you to answer my question. Well, I may have some answers. I don't have all the answers. We understand that we don't have them all. Someone gave this story once. You have a child on the 10th story of a burning building. He cannot see the firefighters with their safety net on the street. They yell to him to jump, and they will catch him. And they yell, trust us. The child is going to object, I can't see you. The firefighter replies, that's okay, we can see you. We are like that child. Evil is like the fire. Our ignorance is like the smoke. God is like the firefighter, and Christ is like the safety net. If there are situations like this where we must trust even fallible human beings with our lives, where we must trust what we hear, not what we see, then it is reasonable that we must trust the infallible, all-seeing God when we hear from his word, but do not see from our reason or our experience. We cannot know all God's reasons, but we can know why we cannot know. God has, by the way, let us know a great deal. He has lifted up the curtain on the problem of evil with Christ. There are the greatest evil that has ever happened, both the greatest evil and the greatest physical evil, both the greatest sin and the greatest suffering, because perfect love hated, because uh, perfect love was hated and crucified. So both the greatest sin and the greatest suffering is revealed as his wise and loving plan to bring about the greatest good, the salvation of the world from sin and suffering eternally. There, the greatest injustice of all time is integrated into the plan of salvation that the Apostle Paul calls the righteousness of God. Love indeed finds a way. Love needs to be and can be trusted. The worst aspect of the problem of evil is eternal evil. We call that hell. Does hell not contradict a loving and omnipotent God? No. Because hell is the consequence of what? Free will. We freely choose hell for ourselves. 
Everyone who goes to hell goes to hell because they choose to go there. God does not cast anyone into hell against his will. To make the choice to say yes or no to the Creator's offer of love and spiritual marriage, right now by doing nothing, you are saying no. No sane person wants hell to exist. No sane person wants evil to exist. But hell is just evil eternalized. If there is evil and if there is eternity, there can be hell and there is hell. If it is intellectually dishonest to disbelieve in evil just because it is shocking and uncomfortable, then it is the same with hell. Reality has hard corners, hard surprises, and terrible dangers in it. We desperately need a true roadmap, not nice feelings, if we're to get home. People often will say this. Hell just feels wrong. Hell just feels unreal and impossible. We could answer this way. Yeah, well, Auschwitz just feels impossible. And it feels unreal. But it really happened. And so does Calvary. Calvary feels unreal and impossible. But in God's gracious love and kindness, Calvary in history took place. And as a result, the answer to the problem of evil is given to us by God that we may be redeemed from it and saved from it and that we may be, become better and one day we will be good as God redeems us completely and we spend eternity with him when he does eradicate everything that is evil. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we thank you so much again for your great and marvelous gift. We thank you, Father, for Christ. We thank you, Father, that you sent Christ to the world to die for sin. We thank you, Lord, that you sent Christ into the world to die for our sin. And Father, we are grateful. In fact, we are and will be eternally grateful for what you've done. We pray, Lord, that you would help us as individual believers to not be stunned when we are confronted with the problem of evil and those who want to bring about their questioning of who you are because evil exists. Help us, Father, to be able to discuss with them, to talk with them about their question and explain to them how the issue of evil has been dealt with by a loving, marvelous, great, and just God. We pray, Lord, that we would not be afraid of such things, but also that we will stand firm on the truth that you've given to us. I do pray, Father, that you would help those who still have children at home, that, Father, you would give to them the desire to often explain to their children how their problem of evil has been solved by you, that they may become so accustomed to having that discussion and so accustomed to that discussion, to that question, that when they are confronted with it by an angry world, they will not be stunned or stunted into silence. But they will know that there is an answer. That the answer is true. That the answer is real. The answer is reasonable. And so, Father, we do thank you again for your grace in our life. We do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.